Good morning. Thank you. Well, this is it. We are at the end of the book of Mark. This is our last talk on the book of Mark before we begin a new series. And so as we begin, let's read the last words that Mark wrote. Beginning with chapter 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women who were watching from a distance, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed and cared for his needs. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And here... The gospel written by Mark ends. Some of you may be saying, if you happen to have Bibles with you, or if you go home and read later, you will find that there are another 11 or 12 verses after this, verses 9 to 20. But most scholars agree that out of the 6,000 6, manuscripts that have been found with the New Testament, there's not a scholar alive today that believes that verses 9 to 20 were written by Mark. They, in fact, appear to be a compilation of Matthew, Luke, and John, because somebody in about 200 B.C., about 200 years after Mark was written, decided that this wasn't a very good ending for the book <laughs> and thought they would add verses that they gathered from the other three gospel writers. And so you'll find manuscripts after about, after about the 2nd century B.C. includes verses 9 to 20 
but they were not part of the original manuscript of Mark. Which begs the question, why would he end the gospel like this? And that's why I've entitled my talk this morning, The Tomb is Empty, What Now? What now? Because that has to be the question that was going through their minds as they left the tomb that morning. That has to be the question for the disciples that were trying to figure out what to do now that the report of the empty tomb was being broadcast. That had to be the question for the readers of Mark's gospel as it was originally written. The tomb is empty. What now? And for us, that also needs to be our question this morning. The tomb is empty. What now? To answer that question, I'd like to go back a little bit and refresh our memories about what Mark is trying to tell us in his book. You know, we have been here since March 10th of 2018. That's when we first started the book of Mark, a little over a year ago. But I also want to tell you that if you sit down and listen to the book being read, which I have done now about a dozen times, it takes about an hour and a half. So you can spend a year or you can spend an hour and a half and get through the book of Mark. And so listening to that, listening to that book over and over and over again, I have come away with four major themes that I believe are takeaways that Mark was trying to tell us. And so we're going to take a real quick review of the book of Mark this morning to help answer that question what now? You know, I have trouble remembering what happened yesterday, let alone what happened a year ago. And so I'm hoping that the refresher may be helpful to you. In doing research for today, I ran across a sculpture by Michelangelo. It's a very famous sculpture. It's called the Pieta. In English, it's translated the Pity. And it was done by Michelangelo in 1498 to 1499. And it is a most famous work depicting the body of Jesus on the lap of Mother Mary after the crucifixion. Of course, we don't believe that that scene ever really took place, but it was an interesting one. And it's, uh, it's actually in the Sistine Chapel. And we've had, Trevor and I have had the opportunity of actually seeing that. While in the Sistine Chapel, we've also looked up at the ceiling of the chapel, which was also painted by Michelangelo. And it is absolutely a gorgeous scene. He painted that between 1508 and 1512. And included in that Sistine Chapel are images from the creation story and images of the end time events. But the most interesting work that Michelangelo did for us this morning, or the one that interests me the most this morning, is maybe a little bit lesser known piece. It's called the Statue of an Angel, which is one of Michelangelo's very first creations. And it was a sculpture. And it was considered to be so beautiful, it is now today considered to be one of the most beautiful angel sculptures of all time. He did this between 1494 and 1495. It's out of marble, 
And it's pretty small. It's only about 51 centimeters tall. When asked about its beauty and how in the world he did that, here was his interesting response. I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. Isn't that interesting? And so for us this morning, maybe you might picture the book of Mark as a slab of marble. And we're going to spend just a few moments seeing if we can't set some of the truths found in the pages of Mark free for us this morning. Point number one that I believe Mark makes with no apology and no hesitation is he makes the point that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He, in fact, he opens the gospel by stating that. He's the only gospel writer that states that at the very beginning. He states it in the first chapter, first verse. John the Baptist confirms it. The Father and the Holy Spirit both also confirm that Jesus is the Messiah at Jesus' baptism. And then Mark continues throughout the entire gospel to give us what he calls our signs. Signs that would convince the reader that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. We'll review just a few of these. Healing the leper is one of my favorites. Because leprosy was considered a horrible disease back then. And it was considered to be the fault of the person that had the leprosy. And so everybody avoided lepers, but not Jesus. Jesus reaches out and touches a leper and heals him in chapter 2. He casts out impure spirits over and over and over again throughout the entire gospel. In chapter 4, you remember he gets in the boat with the storm and then the storm happens and he is awakened and calms the storm. And they cannot believe that here is someone that even the wind and the waves obey him. In chapter 5, we learn that it's not even essential that Jesus be personally contacted in terms of a discussion or an interaction in order to be healed. We learned that by the lady that had the issue of blood that just touched the hem of his garment and was healed. Signs that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He feeds large crowds. He fed 5,000 and then he fed 4,000. He walked on water in chapter 6 out to the boat to see his disciples. He was transfigured in chapter 9 in front of three of his disciples. He makes interesting predictions. He predicts where they'll find a colt for his triumphal entry. He curses a fig tree and it dies. He predicts where they will find a room already established for his Passover supper. He predicts that everybody will abandon him in chapter 14. He predicts Jesus will betray him and that Peter will deny him. All signs that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. The interesting thing is, throughout the entire book, there are certain, certain beings that recognize Jesus. Those beings are the impure spirits. Over and over again, as Jesus casts out impure spirits, he tells them, you can't tell anybody. You need to be quiet. And the reason is because he was not yet prepared to make his announcement that he was the king because nobody understood what that meant. 
But at the very beginning of the book, we find that, that Mark, John the Baptist, the Father, and the Holy Spirit all confirm that Jesus is the Messiah. And at the end of his book, we find the centurion in chapter 15 declares, surely this was the Son of God. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, and one of the biggest signs that Jesus was the Messiah is, in fact, the empty tomb. He's no longer there. He heals, he forgives sins, he feeds crowds, he walks on water. Nature obeys him, the form of a storm and a fig tree. He casts out demons, he's transfigured, he predicts the future, he raises the dead. He's risen, he is the Messiah. Point number one Mark makes in his book, with all the evidence he presents, he's trying to get the reader to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Point number two that Marx makes is in the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. The good news is for everyone. He begins in chapter one by stating, by quoting Jesus, who says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Also in chapter one, the disciples go to find Jesus in a solitary place. He's sleeping or they're sleeping. After they wake up, they go find him praying. And they say, everybody in town is looking for you. You need to come back. And he says, no, I need to move on to another place. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone. He calls a tax collector. He associates with sinners. He associates with those possessed by demons over and over again. And one of my favorite aha moments in the book of Mark comes with the pair of feedings, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, followed by the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8. And you remember that comparison between those two feedings? For those of you that were here, may refresh your memory a little bit, and the, those that weren't, maybe we'll review it real quick. Caitlin, do we have that slide of the two feedings? So if you remember... This was a clear-cut picture that Jesus was giving his disciples, evidence that the gospel is for everyone. The feeding of the 5,000 occurred in Jewish territory. The 5,000 were Jews. There were five loaves. They seated in 50s and 100s, left over with 12 baskets. Jewish territory, Jewish audience, Jewish numbers. We won't go through all those again, but fives and twelves have a lot of meaning in the Jewish economy. Then they crossed over the lake and they went to Gentile territory. The disciples, remember, they thought, well, that's really nice. I understand that, G that Jesus has come for the Jews, and so he would do this type of work for the Jews. But he crosses over to the other side. Now he's on Gentile territory. It's a Greek audience. Seven loaves, the starting point. Seven baskets picked up. Gentile territory, Gentile audience, Gentile numbers in the Gentile economy. The message is clear. The bread that Jesus has, the gospel is for everyone. In the middle of these two feedings is a Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and needs a demon cast out of her daughter. You remember that story? 
And the interesting interaction that Jesus allows for the benefit of his disciples and for us, where Jesus says, hey, what do you think? You know, we're not going to give the... We're not going to give the food to the dogs before the Jews have been fed. And she goes, even the dogs, even the dogs get crumbs. And Jesus tells her, because of your faith, your daughter is healed. The gospel is for everyone. And Jesus was trying to get his disciples to see that. Another very interesting story that we found in the book of Mark is about this two-step healing that Jesus performed to the blind man. You remember that story? That was an interesting one where Jesus takes a blind man and right after Jesus is trying to teach the disciples this message about who he is and that they know he is, Jesus has gotten Peter to say, yes, you are the Christ, but they still don't understand what that means. Though so they understand part A, but they don't understand part B. And then Jesus takes this man, takes this man that's blind and he heals the man except it doesn't work completely. You remember, he asked, he asked the man, what do you see? And he says, I see men, but they're like what? Like trees walking. He couldn't see clearly. He understood in part, but not in whole. So Jesus then heals him again. And this time he sees perfectly well. There was no lack in Jesus' part or ability to heal the man. It's an enacted parable. He was teaching the disciples the gospel is for everyone. Chapter 10, we have an interaction with children where the disciples are trying to shoo them away and Jesus says, oh no, the gospel is for children too. There's an interaction with a rich man in chapter 10 where Jesus extends the invitation. The gospel is for the rich. There's a poor widow, chapter 12. The gospel is for the poor as well as the rich. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, adult, child, sick, well, lots of baggage, less baggage, all receive the invitation. We all receive an invitation. No exclusions. Point number one, Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Point number two, point number two, the gospel is for everyone. We all get invited. At work this last week, I was in Tennessee for a couple of days. Dan Erskine, you guys remember him, right? He used to come around every once in a while. Dan, uh, Dan has been working with an executive coach in California for the last several years and has actually brought that executive coach into Tennessee and is helping the top leadership team at McKee figure out how to survive into the next 10, 15 years. For those of you that aren't very familiar with family businesses, it's very difficult for family businesses to pass from generation to generation, and it's almost unheard of for a company like McKee that's family-owned to go 80 years and into their beginning to get into their fourth generation and survive it. So they're trying to be very intentional about how to do this, and... It's very interesting because if you think about McKee, and I'll bring this around to a spiritual note in just a second, but if you think about McKee, we've, we've really accelerated in terms of our growth and where McKee is on the map. And, and one of the things that the executive coach is teaching us is that a lot of times you get to the top of this curve and then you head down the other side. Unless you're very intentional about things when you're at the top, things change and you head down the other side and things don't 
go very well. You'll be interested to know that it's top of the curve. Top of the curve is called the administrative part of the cycle, where things get really heavily administrative. Then as you start getting down the other side over here, it gets bureaucratic. Bureaucratic. Everything's about the rules and you know and all this kind of stuff. And so Pamela, our executive coach, one of the things she helped us understand is that on the left side over here, you've got all this, all the, this list of things which she calls mechanistic. They're like the checklists, the things that, that you do, the standard operating procedures, the formulas. The, there's all this stuff over here that really is, is really set in concrete. And then there's this list of things on the right-hand side that shouldn't be that way, but in a lot of companies is. Like, for example, organizational structures and decision processes and resource allocations. She calls that side biological or the living system. I don't know about you, but I love lists, and that was a very hard thing for me to hear her tell that not everything belonged on that left side. In fact, I like to-do lists. I'm one of those that just loves to make the to-do list. In fact, so I said, yeah, okay. So I have to confess that even if it's not on the list, if I do something significant during the day, I will add it to the list just so I can put a check in the box and feel the endorphins. Does anybody else do that? Okay. A few people like that. A few people out there like that. But the reality is the whole world does not consist of lists and check marks. And when Jesus came to the world that he came in, the culture that existed at that time was bureaucratic. It was bureaucratic. It had peaked and gone down the other side, and it was heavily bureaucratic. It was heavily lists and rules and do's and don'ts. And so we get to point number three that Mark makes. The kingdom of heaven is all about relationships. It's all about relationships. He starts out with the Sabbath, which is one of our prime things, right? And what does he do? Is he, he teaches that, look, you guys have put all these rules and regulations around the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for us to rest and stop and rejuvenate and regenerate our relationship with God. In chapter 3, we find an interaction where Jesus' family comes to find him. And Jesus says, who is my family? My family are those that do God's will. In chapter 7, he talks about what really defiles it's not the do's and don'ts. It's not the list of what goes in. No, no. That's the easy part. You can put a check in that list. No, I didn't eat that. Didn't eat that. Didn't eat that. Check, check, check. And he's saying, no, that's not it. What goes into the body is not what defiles. It's what comes out. What comes out of them? What, the words that comes out, the hate that comes out, all the things that come out spewing out of your mouth and out of your life. That's what defiles the body. It's all about relationships. In chapter 8, he tells us that we have to take up the cross. Hmm, that's interesting. That's a little different part about the kingdom of heaven that we weren't expecting. Taking up a cross? What kind of Messiah is this? Chapter 8, he also tells us that to save our life, you have to first lose it. Hmm, that's interesting. First must be last, and servant of all in chapter 9. He also says that we have to become like little children. 
That doesn't sound much like my checklist. He says things pretty harsh, like about, hey, look, if things are bothering your relationships, if things are getting in the way of loving God and loving people, get rid of them. If it's your hand, cut it off. If it's your foot, cut it off. If it's your eye, gouge it out. If it's getting in the way of a relationship with me or in relationship with us, get rid of it. Wow. Chapter 10, we learn that Moses said that you can divorce your wife, set her aside. Jesus says, only reason Moses said that is because you were a stiff-necked people. That was not the original intent. The original intent of a relationship with me was that it would stay with it forever. Original intent of a relationship with a spouse is that you would stay with that spouse forever. And if you don't do that, you're committing adultery. If you go marry somebody else, you're committing adultery. Chapter 10, we learned about the relationship with God and that we need to come to God with open hands. It all needs to be God's. We need to put it all in God's hands. Remember the interaction with the rich young ruler. The rich man came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer was, well, he went down that left-hand side, didn't he? He did it for a reason. He went down that left-hand side. All the dues, the checklist. Hey, you need to not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't check, 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 check. The rich man said, I've done all that since a child. And the Bible says, Mark says that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him and said, you lack one thing. Why? Because you're living over here. You need to live over here. You need to go sell all that stuff you got because that's in the way of you having a relationship with me. You need to leave all that stuff behind and you need to come join up with me and have a relationship with me. You come sell all that, give to the poor, and come and follow me. Man, it will be awesome. And the Bible has a sad story to tell about that, doesn't it? It said he went away sorrowful because he was very rich. Pause for a second. Megan has made the point over and over again that we are all rich. By worldly standards, by worldwide standards, we are all rich. Which means, inherently, we are going to struggle giving up the things we need to give up and getting the distractions out of our lives in order for us to have the relationship with God that he wants to have with us. It is going to be hard for us to do that because our wealth allows us to have many, many distractions. And that's what Jesus was telling this man. Get rid of the distractions so that we can have a relationship. It's hard. And in chapter 12, the question is asked, which is the greatest command? And Jesus sums it up beautifully. He sums it up, hey, he didn't pause. He didn't hesitate. He didn't have to think through the list. He went straight over to this side and he said, look, it's all about love. It's all about loving God and loving people. You need to love God and love people. This list over here, it was developed because I knew you all were human beings and you needed something to help you figure this out. But it's all about loving God and loving people. And if you do that well, that's it. That's the sum of the whole law. Love God and love people. The tomb is empty. Now what? Jesus is the Messiah. 
We're all invited to be part of his kingdom. His kingdom is all about relationships. Love God, love people. And that brings us to point number four. You know, last week, Megan talked about the fact that God's kingdom is built on love. And love does not force. And therefore, we have good news. And the good news is that God gives us a choice. The bad news, God gives us a choice. He does not force us. So even though we know that God, that Jesus is the Messiah, even though we know that the invitation is extended to each one of us, and even though that we know that the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is inviting us into is one of love, of loving God and loving people well, he does not force us to accept his invitation. It's up to us. We all have to choose. Point number four. You remember that old song? Some of you may know it. All he wants is you. Nothing else will do. You remember that song? All he wants is you. Nothing else will do. He wants all of your heart. All he wants is all of you. All he wants is you. What's that? Oh, no, I'm not going to sing that one. But it reminds me of that. That's what Jesus wants. And so we find in the book of Mark, Jesus begins the, the story by inviting us to repent and believe the good news. Jesus says those words, repent and believe the good news. And so everybody he interacts with throughout the entire book of Mark is faced with this choice. What am I going to do with the empty tomb? His disciples have to face that choice. His friends, his family, his own mother, father, brothers, sisters, they all had to choose. The Jews had to choose. The Romans had to choose. For us, so many things compete. So many things detract, distract. What about us? For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth that was the distraction that was keeping him from loving God with all his heart. Is there something in our lives that is keeping us from selling out to Christ? You know, for some of us, Jesus in the book of Mark is called Lord and Savior. There's two titles, two meanings. Lord means we're willing to follow. We're willing to give it all up and, you know, we're, we're cashing in. We're in with Jesus. Savior means we recognize the fact that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves and that Jesus saves us. And there's ditches on both sides if we just use one of those titles. If we just call him our Savior, but we don't call him Lord, we're basically saying that we like the fact that Jesus died for us, but we're like the rich young ruler. We're saying, but we don't know that we really want to love God well. There are some that are on the opposite side. There are some that are on the Lord's side. They, they, they want the list. Give me the list. I'll do all the list. But they forget the Savior's side. That the list isn't what saves us. It's the relationship. Lord and Savior. 
For some of us, the Savior part's easy. For some, the Lord part may be easy. I'm reminded of the two disciples of Jesus that made poor choices. We talked about this last time I spoke, I believe. Peter and Judas, they both made very poor choices. Both of them were from in Jesus' inner circle. They both failed miserably. One repented, one did not. One chose to, to put all in with Jesus, and one chose, one chose marriage, one chose divorce. One ended up a pillar of the New Testament church. The other ended up hanging from a tree. You know, we all have baggage, each one of us. Now, you young people out there, I think they're all gone, most of them, this week. But you young people, you're very thankful not to have some of the baggage that us older people have. The older we get, the more baggage we get. That's just the way it is. Because we have more opportunity to fail, and it just seems like we human beings do that so well. But the nice thing is that because the tomb is empty, it doesn't matter how much baggage we have. Jesus still says, repent and believe the good news. So how will we answer the call today? And so we close our experience in the book of Mark with the takeaways that Jesus is the Messiah. His kingdom is all about loving God and loving people. And that he extends his invitation to each one of us to join that kingdom. And so I want to invite you, if you are interested in joining that kingdom today or continuing that journey, that as I have our closing prayer, I would invite you to have your own prayers join with mine in committing to God to be part of that kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your love for each one of us. We're so thankful for your plan of salvation, that Jesus did come, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a wonderful life, that he shared the principles of your kingdom with us on earth, that he died for our sins and that the tomb is now empty, recognizing that we have a Savior and we have one who is at the right hand of God, who is our advocate and our brother. And Father, I personally want to commit my life going forward that I want to be part of that kingdom. And I want for the power of your Holy Spirit to continue to work in my life, that my life may be more in keeping and in harmony with loving God and loving others perfectly. Father, to that end, we commit ourselves this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.